0: is displayed on everything from the World Health Organization's logo to your doctor's name tag. It depicts the treatment of a single disease. The removal of a guinea worm from a patient by slowly wrapping it around a stick over the course of days. This disease is famous for another reason. It's about to be the second disease eradicated from the face of the earth. Welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network, I'm Raven Forrest-Riscalzo, your host. During this past sound education conference in Boston, I did a live show about blood-sucking insects that you've never heard of, which is episode 33. Afterward, someone in the audience asked about the Carter Center and its work to eradicate the guinea worm. Just a few weeks ago, the governor of Illinois put out a shelter-in-place order to help contain the spread of COVID-19. I thought there would be no better time to talk about public health measures, how they work, and the campaign to eradicate the guinea worm is one of the most successful public health campaigns ever. Let's start with what a guinea worm is. They're a type of nematode, also called roundworms. While most nematodes live in the soil and don't hurt anyone, the ones people do know are pretty notorious. Ones like heartworm and dogs and cats, pinworms, and hookworms. Guinea worms start life when a female releases her eggs into a source of fresh water. In most open fresh water, there are tiny crustaceans called cyclops that live life plankton style, eating whatever drifts by. The cyclops named this because they only have one eye, eat the worm eggs. This is great for the worms because they can only get to the next stage in their life cycle inside of a cyclops. Because the cyclops are so tiny and basically clear, people can barely see them with the naked eye. So if someone drinks the unfiltered water, they can easily swallow the cyclops and their worm hitchhikers. Once a cyclops dies in the person's stomach acid, the worms wiggle their way through the intestinal wall and into the abdominal cavity, where the males and females find each other and mate. The males die off, but the females are just getting started. Over the next 10 to 14 months, they grow to an incredible 60 to 100 centimeters, or 23 to 29 inches long and they migrate to the skin's surface. The female worm creates a blister in the skin, usually on the legs or feet, that makes the patient feel like their skin is burning. This hot pain gets so bad that it gives the guinea worm its other name, the fiery serpent. To cool their skin, patients put their blisters into water, which is the worm's cue to erupt from the skin and disperse her eggs, starting the life cycle over again. For the worm, the job is done, but for the patient, the pain is just beginning. The worm has to be removed. Only the tip of it protrudes from the skin, A caregiver must take a stick or piece of gauze and slowly pull the worm out while wrapping it around. If the worm is pulled too hard, it could break, leading to a massive infection. This means that it can take days to weeks to completely remove a worm. As you can imagine, this process is incredibly painful. And before the eradication campaign started, this horrifying treatment had to be done on 48 million people around the world every year. The victims lived mostly in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. In 1979, after the eradication of smallpox, still the only disease to have been wiped off the planet, public health experts in India and the US pushed for the international community to not rest on their laurels, but to select another disease to put down. The guinea worm was a good choice, because at the time, they thought the disease only infected humans, and there were a lot of ways to break the transmission cycle. Even so, it would still be a challenge. There was no vaccine for guinea worms like there was for smallpox, and the only way to treat it is the worm's slow, painful removal. That means that all of the work had to be done by blocking the transmission of the worm in the first place. When you look up vector-borne disease and do an image search, next to the horrifying and sometimes gory pictures of diseases in progress and blood-filled mosquitoes, you'll find disease cycle illustrations with a drawing of each stage of the life cycle of the disease with an arrow going to the next stage. Public health experts look at these arrows as opportunities to break the cycle. The transition from one point in the life cycle to the next are pathogens' weak spots. So for the guinea worm, the cycle goes, a person is infected by drinking water containing an infected cyclops. Months later, the infected person goes into the water supply and releases the guinea worm's eggs. The cyclops eats the eggs, and another person collects the water with a cyclops in it. Person drinks that water round and round we go. To truly break this cycle, the people in charge of the eradication campaign came up with ways to block each step from progressing to the next one. To cut the link between the cyclops and the people, they provide mesh filters and reusable straws with filters inside them. To cut the link between infected people and the drinking water supply, Volunteers in the community educate their neighbors and help them seek medical treatment instead of cooling their blisters in the water. To break the link between the eggs and the cyclops, the water is treated with a chemical called temaphos that can be dosed in amounts enough to kill the cyclops but not affect human health. And finally, to break the link between the cyclops and water collection, Wells are dug to provide safe drinking water. This may all seem fairly simple and straightforward, but these measures had to be implemented in 20 different countries. Some of these countries were at war. For some, there was political strife. And even seemingly benign issues, like the water supply being controlled by multiple organizations within a single country, hampered eradication efforts. Which brings us to today's paper, Eradicating Guinea Worm Without Wells, Unrealized Hopes of the Water Decade, by William Beeger, out of the University of Ibadan in Nigeria back in 1997. His team used the area around the village of Ifalaju as an example of the challenges of implementing these public health measures and how the community overcame them. The region has five major towns and 444 hamlets. These hamlets are small clusters of huts with 15 to 90 residents living there, mostly farmers. Although the farmers spend most of their time in the hamlets, they don't really consider them their homes. They each have a room in their extended family's compound back in the town that they go back to for special occasions and holidays. The arrangement reminds me a lot of people in college. Although they spend most of their time at the school, they rarely consider their dorm room home. When Beecher and his colleagues began their research into the progress of the eradication campaign, they started with the history of the area. They conducted their research by going into the towns and hamlets and interviewing the people living there about the situation. They found that two of the towns were guinea worm-free for years, but then had a large outbreak. As they continued to investigate, Bridger learned a lot about the local people, and human nature in general. The first major problem was the town's piped-in water system, that was built back in the 50s, had broken down. Because the hamlets were small, and people living there viewed them as temporary, the hamlets received little, if any, attention from the government or NGOs. This meant that the farmers were drinking infected water in the hamlets and then bringing the worms back into the city where there were many more people. Combine that with the broken water pipes, and you find the cause of the outbreak. To solve this problem, they started to hand-dig wells in both the villages and some of the hamlets. Unfortunately, these wells dried up in the dry season and collapsed during the rainy season, which must have been an incredibly frustrating situation. The World Health Organization and the World Bank funded a team of environmental scientists to look into the situation and they discovered that the issue was a cultural one, not a geological one. The well diggers were afraid of digging the wells as deep as they needed to be, so they dug them close to the unstable ground near streams. Volunteer village health workers came up with an ingenious plan. These science-minded villagers Mostly women volunteered to get trained to get trained on the ecology of the worm and the measures that it takes to eradicate them. Armed with this knowledge and some donated water filters, they took on Ifelaju's problem on their own terms. They had to start from the ground up by educating their community. Many people thought that guinea worms were a punishment for immoral behavior. It's understandable that people would see things this way. They go a full year or more without symptoms after drinking cyclops-laden water, something that they might not have even noticed. Not to mention that humans all over the world have tied the pain of disease to moral failings. So why should the Nigerians have been any different? With the volunteers' education, though, the people began to see the disease as a water issue— and the volunteers sold the water filters that they were given to get seed money for new wells. The community then hired experts from other villages to hand-dig wells. These experts weren't afraid to dig them as deep as they needed to be. Because the villagers and the farmers in the hamlets Saw the use of the filters as only a temporary measure until the wells got put into place, Breger noticed that they were more likely to use them. With these lessons learned from Mifeluju, Breger and his team concluded that supporting grassroots volunteers in implementing large scale public health campaigns funded by international and national venues, was one of the best ways to combat disease. All of this village-level, person-to-person work that was funded by national and international organizations paid off. Grace Otubo, a 58-year-old farmer, was the last Nigerian to suffer the debilitating disease. For three years after her recovery, Health workers went from village to village, hut to hut, searching for guinea worm, and didn't find a single case. In 2013, Nigeria was declared guinea worm-free. As of 2018, there were only 28 human cases of guinea worm in the world. We now know that dogs can get infected, but both volunteer health workers and public health foundations, like the Carter Foundation, are working on that too. Oftentimes, teens volunteer to be trained to check the village dogs for signs of blisters. If they detect them, the teens help the owners of the dogs to keep the animal away from drinking water sources until the worms have been removed. In doing the research for this episode, I've learned a lot from the volunteer health workers in Nigeria. They are community-minded, creative, well-informed, and full of hope. And together, they've nearly wiped out a debilitating disease. I'm home right now, and have been for five weeks. I'm lucky enough to have a job where I can work from home. But this COVID-19 thing is scary. I have a heart condition, and I'm taking immunosuppressants for my genetic disorder. And there are a lot of people that I care about who, like me, are highly susceptible to the virus. But... Looking at the guinea worm eradication story, although it isn't yet finished, is very heartening. It's proof that public health measures do work. Sure, sometimes the government doesn't fix the water pipes. Sometimes the wells collapse. Sometimes your neighbor doesn't believe the evidence. Sometimes the health measures we thought were going to work don't. But we move forward. We look at the evidence. And we make the next best move. We do our best to understand where people are coming from and empower each community to implement health measures on their own terms with cultural understanding. Okay, here's where I apologize for being late in publishing lately. There's been an emergency in my family, and so I am moving back to Washington State. I know, I move so much uh But, fingers crossed, this will be the last one. I'm sure that you can understand that moving in the middle of a pandemic while being disabled is no walk in the park, so our production schedule has been a little bit wonky. Uh, never fear, though. Raquel and I are still doing the show, and once I'm settled in, I promise that things will get back on track. Um, and speaking of our next episode, it's going to be about lesser-known mosquito-borne viruses and how we are controlling them before they spread. On the good news front, I am now on a new podcasting app that I cannot recommend highly enough. It's called Lyceum. One of the things that I love about my YouTube day job Is that our viewers can just comment directly on the show and give us feedback and tell us what they want to hear more about. There wasn't any way to do this with podcasting until now. On Lyceum, I can post all the cool, informative stuff that I can't fit into episodes, and we can have conversations about your questions. You could also become a show member, which will help me fund the show, and then you can get more Tiny Vampires to Love. The last announcement is the Agora Podcast of the Month. It is Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic looks at politics and current events in Britain and the U.S. Each show consists of American and British pundits reviewing and commenting on the most important U.S. and British pieces of news that week with host Royfield Brown officiating. Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for our intro and outro music. Until next time, think about how you don't have a guinea worm in you, and probably never will, and use that as motivation to turn down your friends when they really want to hang out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.